All right. Come on in. Does anybody remember to, uh, in the last seven days, write down questions that you're going to ask? I knew it. <laughs> that was a prophetic word last week that you'd be writing while I was talking. Um, Dave, you can write on the pink ones. There you go. <clears throat> you can um, just grab one, Char. You don't have to ask yourself a question. Um, grab a card, write down a question, and give it to Char. Your question is not selected. You suck. Um, next week, uh, Ma and Pa Tuttle are going to answer some questions um, about anything. Anything. And uh, but you got to write it on a card first, so they have time to prepare a canned answer. So next week, yep, so we're wearing white tennis shoes and drinking cherry Kool-Aid next week. Okay, some of you guys weren't around for that, but remember that? The crazy cult with the white Kool Aid and the uh, or the white tennis shoes and the Kool Aid. You remember that? Yeah. Tuttle's are. T- yeah. Yeah. I got off work early. I was like, "Dang, get from other shoes." Boots. All right. Oh, Lord. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that when you uh, begin a work in us, you are faithful to complete it. So, Father, I ask that uh, tonight you'd build on that which you started last week, uh, that foundations we believe were laid, um, and that that we started to uh, know you in a new way, to see you in a new way, and even to see ourselves differently. So, Father, I just ask that you continue uh, taking us down that course, and uh, we want to hear from you tonight, Lord. We love you. Amen. You can come on in, Micah. So last week, um, we kind of started something, because I want to I spend some time later in the semester looking at um, what I think uh, is, is ahead in some ways for us as Christians in our culture. Um, but before we get there, I want to spend some time, what we'd call laying a bit of a foundation, and we started that last week. And if you weren't here, 
Um, I don't know if there's a podcast. You can ask Jared. Um, I have no idea, to be honest with you. I just know that I have a microphone attached to my hip. Um, he, yes, he says yes. You can listen to the podcast, but essentially what we spent an hour saying over and over and over and over again uh, was that our position is fixed in Christ. It's immovable. We are perfect. That does not change because our position is independent of our performance. That's the gist of what last week was all about. So, in other words... We're separating how we live and the actions that we take and and our successes and our failures, and we're realizing that's independent from our fixed position in heavenly places in God through faith in Christ. So I really thought about just going through the book of Ephesians tonight because it's astounding. Um, We're not going to. We might might do that um, at another time can't talk to me right now. It would be fun to answer, though, since it's Adam. Um, But I want to spend some time jumping off last week here for a bit. A couple things happened. One, um, we started to get into how does God see us. And to know how God sees us, there are a couple ways this happens. One is just getting in the Word. It's everywhere. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, the, the, the epistles are full of references to who you are in Christ, where you are in Christ, why you're this way in Christ, over and over and over again. Just read the Bible. We don't even need the prophetic to really know who we are as God sees us in Christ. We get the prophetic, but we don't need it. If we could walk in a quarter of the revelation that's just written in Scripture regarding who we are in Christ, we'd be so radical we wouldn't recognize ourselves. However, in addition to what the Word says, we get the prophetic as well, which is wondrous. And so, last week, I I really felt a strong thing that... uh, I was going to use a really charismatic spiritual word, but I'm not going to. Um, I felt strongly that God was wanting to speak prophetically last week to us about us. And um, and the impression that I had was that it wasn't like one time and then we're just going to go away and be done. But that he was starting a shift. And someone had given me a prophetic word about four weeks ago that God was going to start to encounter individuals in the church that was going to lead to a greater corporate hunger. As people started to encounter God personally and prophetically, on their own, that there was going to be hunger that began to arise. Um, And so last week, uh, it was just, okay, this is starting to happen. And then I talked with um, Ryan and Corey about it a bit, and they they definitely confirmed it. And... um, I got, Corey called me on Friday. Uh, I was fried last week, um, metaphorically, um, not the other kind. Um, But Friday, by the end of the week, I was just toasted. And um, and so Corey called at the end of the week, and 
I was like, man, the phone's ringing. I'm just walking out of the office. Literally, I'm not feeling very social. I'll just answer the phone. <laughs> so I answered the phone. and So she gives me this prophetic word that um, it, was, it was really extraordinary. And um, I was trying to drive, and you know, I was using the windshield wipers, but it wasn't raining. Um, and so I was just trying to pull myself together to get home. But it was one of, if not the most um, accurate and intellectual prophetic words I've ever received. And, and by accurate and intellectual, I mean like some of the details that were in the word in the implications for me were things that I have not shared with maybe anyone in certain cases and like one or two people in others. And so for, for her to have a word uh, like that, with that kind of accuracy, to me was astounding. Um, that that an individual uh, is able to to listen and to hear so clearly, so accurately, so intellectually from the Lord. And then, secondly, and most importantly, of course, that He cares enough and is brilliant enough to want to speak to us that way. Um, it just really is really amazing. And then also the other part that was really kind of a confirmation that I think that's what he's doing corporately is, that was the first prophetic word, really prophetic word that I've had in over two years since moving into a new season. Um, So it had major uh, personal implications that way. So with all that said, um, I believe that the Lord is taking us into a bit of a prophetic season for our sake, um, that we might know better what he sees in us um, and that we might better understand what he has intended for us. So, but um, I have boots on, and I keep getting my laces caught. So if I tip over, someone just come stand me up, and we'll get on with it. So last week, again, just kind of recapping, we are in fixed positions in Christ because of Christ, and those positions are completely independent of our actions. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So who he intends you to be is available to you to walk into it. It's up to you to choose whether or not to do that. But he's not going to take it away permanently. You can either fulfill it by walking in obedience or not, but that's available to you. So the question then becomes, what is it for me? So I want to jump into the book of Hebrews, and we know Hebrews really well. We, we know chapter 12 really well, um, and we, we, also, we all know the verse really well that we're going to really launch off of, but fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? We know that verse. But... The context of the verse is really, really important. Because if we miss the context, we fail to really see what he's talking about. Why? Why do we do this? So do you remember what Hebrews 11 is? Yeah. Not just faith, though. The heroes of the faith. It's the great ones. It's the great ones in history. It's the great people throughout history from heaven's perspective in Hebrews 11. 
There were no chapter breaks from Hebrews 11. So it wasn't like I get done with Hebrews 11, we throw that letter in the fire, and six months later we get chapter 12, and he's starting a new thought. This is a continuation. So Hebrews chapter 11, he's talking about the awesomeness of the heroes of the faith. I'm going to start in verse 32. We'll read to 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, and they stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. We get that. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, all of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Now we move into chapter 12. Therefore, because of this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so closely clings, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Because of these heroes whose lives we look to and go, yes, we're inspired. That's what I want to be. Because of these guys, lay off the weight and sin and run the race set before you. What's the race set before me? Well, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your race. He's setting a context here and giving us understanding that yes, in fact, we are meant to belong in the heroes of the faith chapter of scripture, the eternal one, the canons of scripture, the heroes of faith, but that will not happen unless we do what he says in verse one and verse two, which is fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's writing our race. Now, just briefly, um, this is important. We have to understand that when we read the scriptures about these heroes of the faith, their actual lives would have looked far less glorious from a worldly perspective than we often think. When we look at the Hebrews of the faith, the Hebrews of the faith, the heroes of the faith in the the book of Hebrews, I'm really accustomed to looking at them up through verse 35, where they've conquered other armies. They've quenched fire. They've called people back from the dead. And that's really comfortable to me to consider that destiny for a hero of the faith. 
But where we're going in a couple of weeks is more the verse 36 and on. They suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. Went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. This isn't necessarily what's going to happen, but it's possible that this is what's going to happen. We don't have a guarantee that if we want to be heroic in the faith, that all will go well with us all of our days from an earthly, worldly perspective. We will, it will go well with us all of our days from heaven's perspective, but well with us all of our days from heaven's perspective does include sawn in two. So if that's what's possible, we have to be really certain that we know who our Father is, and what he's written about our lives, where he's taking us. It's got to happen. You know, we have John the Baptist ministries and churches around the country. Everybody wants to be John the Baptist. Um, And sometimes I, I wonder, you know, is this like, how are they training? What class is it that they offer that's preparation for like head on a platter? That was John's destiny for greatness in God. So how are you training that course of the John the Baptist ministry? Because that was a part of why he was great in the kingdom of God. So this isn't to say, oh, let's all be scared. This is to say that John knew something about John and about God, that allowed him to remain faithful and steadfast, even as his head was being removed. Do you remember when they asked John who he was in the wilderness? And they asked him, you know, who are you? And he testifies that he's not the Christ. But he calls himself essentially Isaiah 40. That's what John said. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He took it out of the Bible and he goes, this is me. I'm Isaiah 40. John knew who John was. So when adversity came, John wasn't shaken because John knew this is who I am. This is what my life is to be about. If we're to stand with that kind of confidence, in effect, our culture, to the same measure that these heroes of the faith did, then we best know who is our Father and who am I. Otherwise, as soon as adversity arises and I get locked in prison, I'm ready to abandon ship. John had a moment like that In Matthew 11, where his disciples come to Jesus, Hey, we heard about you. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Come on. John's looking to bail me out. Get me out of jail, sir. Cousin. Help me out here. And Jesus tells him, Blessed is he he who is not offended because of me. In other words, John, just stick to your guns. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just don't be offended. You know what your life is about. And John lost his head in prison. So, 
I say this because I don't want us to have false perceptions of what greatness in the kingdom might look like for us. It might not look like wealth. It might not look like fame. It might not look like uh, popularity. It might look like dressed in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. I don't know. Some, David, Solomon, wealth was attached to their lives. Prosperity was attached to their lives. What I'm telling you is, I can't tell you one way or the other that this is what's for you. You've got to hear that from the one who's writing your race. Some in the room will be impoverished and serving in other nations, and no one ever knows your name, and others will stand before kings. But I can't tell you that. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to say you have a responsibility to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the one who's authoring your race, and to hear from him what it's supposed to look like as you go forward. The apostles were prisoners, impoverished, and murdered, all but one. Most of them lived in other people's homes. Mom, guess what? Just kidding. I wouldn't pray that for anybody. You can do it voluntarily. Um, The prophets were at great times of great reputation but at times were snot-nosed kids that were not impressive in any manner. Some were farmers. Some were businessmen. Some were governmental leaders. In fact, when you look at the scripture and you read the prophets and their original positions when God moved on them, almost none of them were actually full-time ministers. You'll take anyone who's willing to go. Secondly, to understand how we might end up belonging amongst and amidst this crowd, we are instructed to fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. He's writing our story. You might be perceived a hundred different ways by a hundred different people, and none of those opinions matter. Not one. People perceive through filters, and they're wrong unless they've had it explicitly revealed by God. When you look at the, uh, the reception that was received by the apostles and the prophets... Like I said, all but one were murdered. I think they were all beaten. The one that wasn't murdered, he got thrown on a rock in the ocean to die, and he wouldn't die because he was too old and stubborn. They were all ostracized. And the question that arises, do I want to be defined by the perceptions and opinions of men? Or do I want to hear heaven's perspective about the way that I live before God? And men. 
And if I don't want to be defined by the perceptions and opinions of men, then why am I working so hard to earn their praise and acceptance? So we were made, like we were saying last week, we were made, we were designed to enjoy our Father's pleasure. We have been given the Father's pleasure because of the works of Christ. We receive it in faith, and we become the recipients of perfection and the righteousness of God, which is a guaranteed pleasure from the Father in us at any time, independent of our performance. You could talk about this every single day for the next six years and it would never get old and there would always be something fresh in it for you as to how God sees you because of what Christ has done. Real quick, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, there are two prayers in there and we might get into it in a couple weeks, but in the meantime... Go in there where Paul is praying and read those and then pray it over yourself. Pray over yourself, God, give me wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. I want to know my inheritance. I want to know your inheritance in me. God, Scripture says that God has an inheritance in us. Mind-blowing. Our eyes fixed. On Jesus. If we catch a single glimpse of Jesus in his glory, it's over. We're over. We will never be the same again. You look at Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These guys had glimpses of the glory of God radically changed. It says Ezekiel sat by the river babbling in nonsense. His mind was completely blown. From that encounter, he's launched as a heavenly vessel into the earth. We want to have massive impact in the earth on behalf of the kingdom of God. It doesn't come through ministry efforts. It comes from encounter with the glory of the Lord. If our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, seeking after a glimpse, it will almost never come. But he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That's where Hebrews 11 starts. Hebrews 11 starts out saying that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. It starts telling the testimony of those who did and the things that they accomplished, and their greatness before God, and then he wraps it up in Hebrews 12 by saying, now fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who can get you there, who will reward you when you seek him, and he will perfect you through to the end of the story. That's what's being written in Hebrews 11 and 12. It's so powerful. So are you reading his biography that's being penned in your life? Your life is a part of his story. It's his biography that's being manifest through you. Socrates um, wrote, The unexamined life is not worth living. So our 
Are we examining what he's doing in our lives? Are we hearing what he's saying, both in his word and in the spirit? And are we putting the pieces together? Do we know who we are? Do we know our race? This morning I was, I had to, um, I have to, I got to speak to a, a group of um, high school kids. It was kind of fun. Welding class uh, on Northern's campus. And I was writing some things about um, my my life in the last number of years. And I was just uh, suddenly just overwhelmed with the, the awareness that uh, I'm in his story. That when I tell the story of my life, as when you tell the story of yours, you're actually telling someone the biography of God and his work in a human vessel. We have a responsibility to know his story as it pertains to our life. Uh, I've not put a lot into journaling. Um, not because I don't value it. Um, mostly because I don't really like my writing. Often I'll go back and read something I wrote a few years before and be like, what an idiot. Um, so I have a hard time getting over that, but I recommend it. If, um, if you don't have uh, an outstanding memory. And if you have an outstanding memory, every few years go back and remember and then make some notes because in 40 years your memory may not be quite what it used to be. Um, so I've not put a lot into journaling, mostly because I've, I've got a really strong memory. Um, although some of my colleagues at work would disagree with that. Um, but anyway, whatever it takes, if you've got to write it down or remember it or have people around you that remind you of things, know your story in God. It's his story, but know how you fit. See how he's been working and changing you and pulling you and growing you and leading you somewhere. But if you're not examining his work in your life, you're just kind of going along like a boat tossed on the waves, clueless to where he's leading. Confidence does not build living that way. It does not grow. Remember the dreams that you've had about where he's taking you. Dreams are like a snapshot out of a video. The video might be 40 years long, and you might have a dream, and it's 10 seconds about where he's taking you. But remember it. Write it down. Tell somebody about it so they can tell you about it 10 years and your memory's shot. You've got to know, God, what's my story in you? Where are we going together? Rehearse it. When you're in a hard time, there are a few things that will encourage your heart, like rehearsing your own story, past, present, and future in the Lord. It reminds you that he's at work in your life and he's been with you for years. It reminds you that he's with you in this moment and he led you into this seeming mess and he's going to lead you out of it into something that you've dreamt of for 15 or 20 years or maybe five. Rehearse your story that he's writing. 
Pray it. Pray it. If he shows you, you get to come back and say, you said this. You said this was going to happen. You have to fulfill your word. You can't lie. (laughs) You've got to do this. You said it. Pray it. Pray your story before the Lord. It creates gratitude. It creates wonder. It creates worship. And it creates faith. Jeremiah wrote things that Daniel read and Daniel saw where he fit into God's story and he went to God and he said, you have to do this because you said. It kind of makes you wonder if any of that would have ever happened had not Daniel prayed that way. Tell it. Tell your story. Some of us are good at this. I'm pretty good at telling the parts where I haven't done so well. You know, struggle. Um, I have a little bit more trouble uh, telling the part of the story where the good things. Um, But tell the story, good, bad, and ugly, because it's not your story. It's his story. And the other reason that it's worth rehearsing your story in God is that every time I go back and I remember the things that I went through, he shows me something different that I didn't realize happened the first time around. Or I learned something new that I never saw before. Um, Every time I remember different powerful moments in my life with God, he brings something new to light. And I realize that When it's the testimony of God, there is an infinite number of things that he can do in it and through it because we're walking with him. There's no limit to who he is. So every time you go back and you look back at your testimony as you've walked with him, his story in your life, you will see new things that he was doing in your heart, teaching you, redeeming, and delivering you. Now, the story is written over the course of years. It's not, you know, it's not three months, although three months is great. And if you see the work he's doing in three months, don't stop looking. Continue, because the story gets better the more time goes on. And the story gets even better after the three years of burning passion leads into a time of difficult perseverance. And maybe a wilderness trial of desperation and heartache and sorrow. And it comes to a point where he delivers you into a promised land. And this whole thing takes 15 years. And suddenly you look and you read the whole story. And you see how he's been with you. Active, moving, leading, transforming through the whole thing. And the story gets better and better and better. And we have to know what he's doing in us, what he's forming in us. Jesus, in fact, he rebuked people for not knowing the season. 
and what God was doing in the earth in their time. He said, if you have the Spirit, you have an obligation to know the seasons. You can tell the weather, but you can't tell the season of God's activity in your life now. We have that not only responsibility, but the privilege to know what is God doing in my life, in my time. If we don't, we'll not only miss out on what he's forming in us, where he's taking us, but we'll, we'll fail to develop the confidence to stand firm through whatever circumstances he might lead us. If you remember Jesus, um, when he confronts Saul, he tells him, I will show you what things you must suffer for my name. So that when suffering came, Paul was able to celebrate. He wasn't wondering if this was discipline for wrongdoing. Did I stray, Lord? How could this beating have come upon me? I just got the 40 lashes minus one. Again. What have I done to deserve this? Have I failed in sin? Have I stepped off course? But he didn't ever have to ask those questions because he'd heard from God, I will show you what you must suffer for my namesake. So when suffering came, he was able to celebrate rather than grieve. It was a part of his calling that would be rewarded. Now, I want to I take this one step further because I've got a few minutes. When you hear from the Lord, this is where I'm taking you. This is where we're going. I'm writing this story. You have to cultivate. You have to cooperate to get there. If you're going to stand before kings, you have to get comfortable standing in royal garb. You're not just going to show up one day and suddenly you've got it. Moses, by faith, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. I'm sure all of our parents felt that way. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It says, by faith, Moses left Pharaoh's household. Yeah? We know that. But Moses, because of his upbringing in Pharaoh's household, was one of two, probably, Israelites who was equipped to go back before Pharaoh and present what he had to present to get God's people delivered. The bulk of the population would not have been able to, to come in and had the level of education or linguistic skill to stand before Pharaoh and tell him this is what you're going to do because God said so. There's a cooperation that's required and an action on our part to develop that which we will one day use when we come into our calling. We can't just do nothing and expect to show up and have it all put together. One, we walk in obedience where we are. When God speaks and he says, this is where I'm taking you, we don't probably become king the next day. David was 17 to 20 years after he was anointed king before he became king. So he, he then, he heard from God and went back to where? The field. 
with the sheep. Because he knew his job at the time was to be a shepherd. So he hears, I'm going to be king, and he immediately goes and applies himself in wholehearted obedience where he was now. Two, we cooperate with the grace of God toward fulfilling the calling on our lives. We can't really expect to run a kingdom well if we've never applied ourselves to learning the ways of governance. If you have a calling on your life about kingship, about leadership, you better develop some of the attributes necessary in the knowledge needed to lead and govern well. You cannot just go through life hoping that the day you show up, suddenly it's all just going to land in your brain. Don't expect, maybe you want to be a writer, don't expect to be an effective writer if you've never developed clear communication techniques. So what has God said, and then what are we doing to cooperate with him to move in that direction? So what story is God writing in you? Your calling is a part of your inheritance. It's given, and it's yours for the taking. So I really think right now we're moving into a season where there's going to be a lot of prophetic encounter both individually and through others, where God, he's, he's going to take what you know about where you're going to another level for you. Um, I want to, at the end, just spend a few minutes, if anyone wants to, um, receiving some, some um, prophetic ministry. And uh, if you feel like you want to pray for someone or you have a word from someone, just feel free to do that. Um, and, but if you, if you want to get uh, prayed over, I feel like that's something the Lord is doing right now. I want to leave you with one um, anecdotal story. When William Wilberforce began his endeavor uh, to abolish slavery in England, John Wesley wrote him a letter six days before he died. And in the letter... This is his quotation. Unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius Contramundum, who was the pillar of the church, he was, uh, he was a man who stood alone and had the courage to stand alone. Um, it's, uh, he said, unless you have the divine power which has raised you up, um, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable Villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery... The vilest thing that ever saw the sun shall vanish away before it. This is such a powerful paragraph. One, because he's telling Wilberforce, if you haven't heard from God, you'll be destroyed. If you don't know this is God, you will be destroyed. But if you know that this is God, nothing, nothing will stand in your way. Not even the American, the vilest of all slaveries will stand in your way. It was almost a hundred years before 
slavery was abolished even in our nation. Years after Wilberforce's death, John Wesley is prophesying the beginnings of it through the life of William Wilberforce, and he was right. And Wilberforce did know. Had he not known, things history would look far different today. So now the responsibility falls to us. Will we take the time to wait upon the Lord, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to hear from him, Lord, where are you taking me? What, to what end are you calling me? I want to be like Wilberforce. I want to be like Mother Teresa. I want to be like Abe Lincoln. I want to be like Isaiah. I want to be like Jeremiah. But God, you have to tell me who you want me to be. I'll go anywhere, God. I just need an encounter with you. Meet me and tell me where you want to go. I'm not going to go anywhere until I hear from you. So, Father, Lord, thank you for willing vessels. And, Lord, as as we look around the room, there's not one who's unwilling to go or to do anything that you'd say. Lord, admittedly, our our biggest fault is often not taking the time to first hear from you before we go. Busyness uh, distracts so quickly and so easily that we forget to just stop and sit before you and hear from you again. But Lord, we thank you so, so much for your word and your voice by which you speak to us, you lead us, you define us. You call us your own, and then you call us to things that are beyond ourselves. You call us to things that only you can accomplish as you work through men and women that are willing. So, Father, as you take us into a season where you are going to increase our knowledge of what you're doing in the earth in this day and in our lives, we just ask for clarity. We ask for precision, and we ask for confirmation. Answer questions, Lord. Confirm suspicions and hopes and expectations. Speak clearly, God, and remove confusion. We need to hear from you, and we will not move until we do. We love you. We love you.